You know what pollen is. It's that stuff that during certain times of the year makes your eyes itchy and your nose run. But as annoying as it is, pollen plays an essential role in the life cycle of flowering plants. Without pollen, these plants wouldn't be able to produce the fruits and seeds that they need to reproduce. Pollination is defined as the transfer of pollen from the anther, or male part of a plant, to the stigma, or female part of the plant. It's plant sex. And a pollinator is anything that facilitates this process. Now, this process can be abiotic, meaning that it happens through natural forces like water or primarily the wind. Of plants that rely on abiotic pollination, about 98% rely on the wind. But somewhere around 80% of flowering plants rely heavily on biotic pollination, meaning that they need living pollinators to move their pollen from flower to flower. Now, most of these plants don't rely exclusively on living pollinators, but without a biotic pollinator, plants like strawberries, soybeans, and coffee beans would see a reduced yield of anywhere from 10 to 40%. Many varieties of fruit trees, apples, peaches, and plums, as well as blueberries, raspberries, and many nuts would suffer a reduction of 40 to 90%. And some plants, like our summer favorite watermelon and cocoa beans, would see a reduced yield of over 90%. That's right, no pollinators, no chocolate, and much less coffee. <gasps> the horror. So that's what I want to talk about today. Just a few of the pollinators that are out there doing the important work of moving pollen around and keeping us in flowers and fruit and chocolate and coffee. Specifically, I'm talking about bees. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, and this is the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. Now, I want to start this episode with a disclaimer. I'm talking about bees because, well, to be honest, they're fascinating. I love this quote by Ray Bradbury in his book, Dandelion Wine. Bees do have a smell, you know, and if they don't, they should, for their feet are dusted with spices from a million flowers. But I don't want you to think that bees are the only pollinators. Hummingbirds, some species of bats, beetles, flies, moths, butterflies, wasps, even mosquitoes are all biotic pollinators. But say the word pollinator, and bees are usually the first thing you think of. Specifically, honeybees are the first ones to come to mind. And while honeybees get a whole lot of press, you should know that there are 20,000 species of bee worldwide, and just eight of those are honeybees. Not 8,000, eight. By far the most well-known is the western honeybee, since that's the primary species that's been domesticated so that we can enjoy honey and put beeswax in everything from candles to lip balm to soap. Now, interestingly, no true honeybee existed in North America prior to the 1600s. Honeybees were brought by European settlers, along with the crops that use honeybees for pollination. Honeybees subsequently escaped into the wild, not really much of a surprise there, which actually makes so-called wild honeybees feral, and they spread rapidly across the Great Plains. Honeybees didn't naturally cross the Rocky Mountains. They were introduced into Utah by Mormon settlers in the 1840s and brought to California by ship in the 1850s. Technically speaking, 
Honeybees are an invasive species in North America, although I'd argue that they are one that we've come to depend on. And while apples, blueberries, and cherries are 90% dependent on honeybee pollination, those crops were imported along with the bee. No crops originating in North America depend on the western honeybee for pollination. Native crops like tomatoes, peppers, and squash are pollinated by native pollinators like bumblebees. Now, a honeybee colony generally consists of a queen, tens of thousands of female worker bees, and, depending on the time of year, a few thousand male drones. Queens can live up to three years and are responsible for laying eggs. She lays each egg in a cell of the honeycomb, choosing whether to fertilize the egg or not. Fertilized eggs become worker bees. Unfertilized eggs become drones. I could get into the genetics of all that, but I'm not gonna. Although they do help the worker bees maintain the proper temperature of the hive if it gets too warm or too cold, drones really have one primary job, to mate with an unmated queen, usually from another colony. Drones don't have stingers and can't even feed themselves without help from a worker bee. Mating takes place in a drone congregation area. Nobody really knows how these congregation areas are selected, but they do exist. Mating occurs in flight, and should a drone succeed in mating a queen, the first thing that happens is all the blood in his body rushes to his endophallus, which is exactly what you think it is, causing him to lose control over his entire body. His body falls away, leaving a portion of the endophallus attached to the queen, which then helps guide the next drone to the queen. Oh man, I'm happy I'm not a bee. Worker bees progress through a variety of jobs in their short lifetime, which is, on average, only four to six months. Young worker bees, sometimes called nurse bees, clean the hive and feed the larvae. Larvae are initially fed on a substance called royal jelly that's produced by the nurse bees, switching later to pollen and nectar. When their royal jelly-producing glands atrophy, worker bees start building honeycomb cells. They will eventually progress to other tasks as they become older, like receiving nectar and pollen from foragers and guarding the hive. Even later, these worker bees leave the hive and spend the remainder of their lives as foragers. Workers can sting intruders as a form of defense, and alarmed bees release a pheromone that stimulates the attack response in nearby bees. Worker honeybees are the only individuals of any bee species that have small barbs on their stinger, that cause it to tear loose and the bee to die when the stinger is embedded in fleshy tissue. The sting apparatus, including the barbs, may have evolved specifically in response to predation by vertebrates, since the barbs don't usually function and the sting apparatus doesn't detach unless the stinger is embedded in fleshy tissue. The sting apparatus has its own musculature and ganglion, which keep delivering venom even after detachment. The gland that produces the alarm pheromone is also associated with the sting apparatus, so the embedded stinger also continues to emit the alarm pheromone after it is torn loose. While the stinger can penetrate between the joints in the exoskeleton of other insects and is used in fights between queens, defense against larger insects, like predatory wasps, is usually done by what's known as balling. A mass of defending worker bees surround the intruder and vibrate their muscles in order to raise the temperature to a lethal level. It used to be thought that the heat alone was responsible for killing intruding wasps, 
but recent experiments have shown that it's the increased temperature combined with increased carbon dioxide levels within the ball that produce the lethal effect. This method is also used to kill a queen perceived as either intruding or defective. Honeybees communicate through many different chemicals and odors, which is common in insects, but they also rely on a sophisticated dance language that conveys information about the distance and direction to a specific location, usually a source of food or water, but they also use this dance to communicate the location and quality of nesting sites. In some species of honeybee, worker bees orient the dance in the actual compass direction of the resource that they're referencing. A larva fed only on royal jelly becomes a new queen, and colonies are established not by solitary queens like most bees, but by groups known as swarms, which consist of a mated queen and a large contingent of worker bees. The swarm moves en masse to a nest site scouted by worker bees beforehand, and whose location was communicated by using a dance. During this time, honeybees are not usually aggressive. They have no hive to protect. And I've seen videos of beekeepers removing swarms, including the queen, with their bare hands without getting stung. Once the swarm arrives at the designated spot, they immediately construct a new wax comb and begin to raise a new worker brood. This type of nest founding is not seen in any other living bee genus. Okay, final fun facts about honeybees. A honeybee colony can gather around 40 pounds of pollen and an average of 265 pounds of nectar in a single year and make between 30 and 60 pounds of honey. Okay, so now let's talk about some native bees. Bumblebees vary in appearance. There are, after all, over 250 different species worldwide. But in general, they're broader and stouter bodied than honeybees and densely furry. Like honeybees, most bumblebees are social and form colonies with a single queen, although bumblebee colonies are much smaller, averaging between 50 and 400 individual bees. Many species nest underground, using abandoned rodent burrows or other sheltered places, avoiding spots that get direct sunlight to prevent them from overheating. Other species make their nests above ground, either in thick grass or in tree cavities. A bumblebee nest is not organized into neat hexagonal combs like the honeybees. Instead, the cells are more spherical and clustered together in a much more chaotic way. Worker bumblebees gather nectar and add to the stores in the nest, along with pollen to feed their young, although some bumblebees will steal nectar by making a hole near the base of the flower to get the nectar while avoiding pollen transfer. Workers will also remove dead bees or larvae from the nest and deposit them outside the entrance, helping to prevent disease. Nests in temperate regions last only one season, and only new queens survive the winter. New queens hatch in the late summer, and after mating, feed heavily. These queens will overwinter in sheltered sites, usually along forest edges. They emerge in the early spring and go in search of nest sites. The queen begins her colony by laying fertilized eggs to produce female workers, incubating them with her body heat. When they hatch, she'll forage for pollen and nectar from early spring flowers. Once this first batch of daughters mature, they take over the foraging while the queen stays in the nest to continue laying eggs and growing the colony. The average lifespan of a worker bumblebee is only about a month. Unfertilized eggs to produce drones are laid later in the year, just like the honeybees, 
Drone's only job is to mate with a new queen, and they only live for about two weeks. Now, bumblebees are active in temperatures that would make honeybees stay at home, and they can readily absorb heat even from weak sunshine. Their furry little bodies act as insulation to keep them warm in colder weather. Species from cold climates have longer fur, thus thicker insulation, than those from the tropics. But in order to fly, the temperature of the flight muscles in the bumblebee's thorax needs to be at least 86 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, the bees raise this muscle temperature by shivering. At an air temperature of 55 degrees, it takes a bumblebee about five minutes to warm up enough to fly. Bumblebees forage using color and spatial relationships to identify which flowers to feed from. Since the colony does not survive the winter, they don't create winter food stores, so the nectar they gather doesn't undergo a transformation period to create the honey that we're familiar with. However, bumblebees have their own version of nectar stores, and sometimes these nectar stores are referred to as honey pots because of the shape of the cells. They look very similar to Winnie the Pooh's jar of honey. Worker bumblebees monitor the amount of honey in the honey pots, and when reserves are low or when high-quality food is added, they're more likely to go out to forage. Now, bumblebees don't communicate with dances like honeybees. Instead, when they return from a successful foraging expedition, they run around the nest excitedly for several minutes before going out to forage again. Now, it's been hypothesized that these bees may be engaging in some form of communication based on the buzzing of their wings, which may stimulate other bees to go out and start foraging as well. Bumblebee workers and queens can sting, but their stingers are smooth, not barbed like the honeybees, meaning they can sting multiple times and don't die as a result. One of the most interesting thing about bumblebees is that they've been observed to engage in social learning. In a 2017 study, bumblebees were taught to complete an unnatural task of moving large objects, large in relation to the bee that is, in order to obtain a reward. Bees who first observed another bee complete the task were significantly more successful in learning the task than bees who observed the same task performed by a magnet, which indicated the importance of social information. It's also fascinating to note that the bees didn't just copy each other exactly. The study suggested that the bees were instead attempting to emulate one another's goals. Now, carpenter bees are often mistaken for bumblebees, and with good reason. They're very similar in size and shape. Carpenter bees, though, have a shiny, hairless abdomen compared to the bumblebee's furry one. Worldwide, there's about 500 species of carpenter bee. The common name carpenter bee comes from their nesting behavior. Nearly all species burrow into hard plant material like dead wood, and to people's dismay, this includes fences, decks, and other wooden structures. The initial tunnels they make are near the surface, so structural damage is generally minor or superficial. Typically, carpenter bees do not cause serious structural damage to wood unless large numbers of bees are drilling many tunnels over several years. But subsequent years' broods can expand the tunnels through branching, and holes on exposed surfaces can let water in and lead to damage from fungi, rot, and other insects. Carpenter bee nests are also attractive to woodpeckers, which can do more damage by drilling into the wood to feed on the bees or the larvae. Carpenter bee houses are a good way to give carpenter bees a place to live without damaging your house, but you should make sure that any bee house you make or buy is made with untreated wood so that it's safe for the bees. 
Now, carpenter bees are solitary bees. They don't form colonies like honeybees or bumblebees, but they do tend to nest near one another, often living alongside sisters and daughters, creating a small social group. But with solitary bees, the founding bee does all the work, foraging, building cells, laying eggs, and guarding the nest. Carpenter bees aren't aggressive. Females can sting, but rarely do unless they're grabbed or stepped on. Males don't even have a stinger, but they're the ones that are most often noticed. They hover near the nest and will dart after any other flying insect that ventures into their territory. They also like to act belligerent and are known to fly right up in your face to try and scare you away. Young adult male and female carpenter bees hibernate in the tunnels during the winter. They mate in the spring and set about either cleaning and enlarging the old tunnels or excavating new ones as brood chambers for their young. Each chamber is provisioned with a portion of what's called bee bread, which is a mixture of pollen and regurgitated nectar, which serves as food for the larva. An egg is deposited on the food supply, and the chamber is sealed off. The female will usually create six to eight chambers. The larva hatch from the eggs, complete their development, and pupate. New adult carpenter bees emerge in August, feed on nectar, and return to the tunnels to overwinter. Carpenter bees have very short mouth parts and are important pollinators of many open face or shallow flowers, and for some, they're even obligate pollinators, meaning they are the only insect to pollinate those particular plants. Okay, the last bee I want to talk about is the mason bee. Mason bees look more like honeybees, although some species of mason bee can look more like houseflies, but they act more like carpenter bees. In fact, mason bees often take over abandoned carpenter bee tunnels. There are over a hundred different species of mason bee native to the U.S. and Canada, but the common name mason bee comes from their nesting habits. They use mud to build their homes. Mason bees share many similarities to carpenter bees. First of all, they're solitary bees, so females are responsible for building their own nests, scouting and foraging for their own food, and defending themselves. They hibernate in winter and emerge in the spring. Males are the first to surface, and once they do, they wait patiently for the females to follow so they can mate. Drones will hang around the nest searching for any signs of emerging females. They can be territorial at this time and sometimes fight with each other. Once the females emerge, mating takes place almost immediately, and the males die shortly after. After mating, females begin building nests and laying eggs. Now, they don't have time to waste either, because after emerging in the spring, they only live about another six weeks. This rapidly approaching expiration date makes them some of the busiest bees around and incredibly valuable as pollinators. They'll visit almost 2,000 flowers per day. When mason bees forage, they roll in the pollen to collect as much as possible. They don't have pollen baskets on their legs like some other bees, so they need to rely on the pollen sticking to their fur. Mason bees are cavity nesting bees, but unlike carpenter bees, they don't make their own holes. This means they build their nests in existing holes, cracks, crevices, tunnels like those made by carpenter bees, and even empty snail shells. Like carpenter bees, mason bees don't live in colonies, but they do prefer to nest near each other. Once a female finds a suitable nesting site, she regurgitates the nectar she's stored and deposits the pollen she's collected. She'll repeat this process, alternating between nectar and pollen, as many as 25 times for a single egg. 
This, of course, means she has to make many foraging trips in between. When she's satisfied with the pile that she's built, she'll lay an egg on top of this mound and she'll cap the cell with mud, hence the name mason bees. She'll use whatever mud she can find, carrying it to the nest in little balls and packing it into the cells with her horns. Mason bees lay fertilized or female eggs at the back of the nest and unfertilized male eggs towards the front. This is why the males emerge first in the spring. On average, up to 10 cells are created per nest using mud to partition each one. The female builds about five nests each season and can lay up to 35 eggs in her lifetime. Okay, before I wrap up this episode, I want to say a little bit about wasps, and I think I'll actually talk about wasps in the next episode. My wife recently asked me, what's good about wasps? And my immediate answer is that wasps are also pollinators. Like bees, some are social, like paper wasps and yellow jackets, and some are solitary, like cicada killers or scolid wasps. Many species also help control populations of other insects, either by eating them outright or, more commonly, by laying their eggs on the larva, which, when they hatch, consume that larva. Wasps get a lot of hate, mostly because people are afraid of their sting, but they're really only aggressive when defending their nest or when you accidentally grab them or step on them. Like I said, we'll do the next episode on wasps, sort of a pollinators part two. But for now, we've reached the end of this episode. So thank you as always for listening. Be sure to leave a like and subscribe. If you're enjoying the podcast and you'd like to support future episodes, please consider becoming a patron by going to patreon.com forward slash dispatches from the forest. Tiers start at just $5 a month. You can also follow Dispatches from the Forest on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. If you have a question, a comment, or a suggestion for a future episode, you can reach me by email at dispatchesfromtheforest at gmail.com. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to go outside and get dirty. The Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast whole or in part without express written permission.